Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Welcome to the Open Mic Podcast with your host, Brett Allen. Join us each week as Brett interviews extraordinary and amazing people. At the Open Mic, no topic is off limits, and you never know who will drop by. Now, here is your host, Brett Allen. Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? Happy Friday to you. Welcome into another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Feeling the love, feeling the music, feeling the beats. All of it. Happy Friday to you again. It's good to be here with you. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope everyone is happy and healthy. We are in week three of lockdown, and uh, that's not stopping us. We are putting out podcasts, putting out content, and really just trying to leave people better than the way that we found them with the show. We have a very special guest today, but before I get to that, I just want to say thank you again to everybody all the love and support of our episode with Lisa Lampanelli. Over 2,000 downloads so far. That episode is just absolutely screaming and going through the roof. Stacy Dash, right about the same. And uh, our guest today is D.B. Sweeney. Hello, Cutting Edge, Memphis Bell, Eight Men Out. The list goes on and on. He has a brand new short on YouTube and Facebook right now called Two Dumb Mix with him and Sean Aston and dumb with no B because they're dumb. This is absolutely hilarious. If you haven't seen this yet, you have to just head over to Facebook and check it out. It's free. It is about five minutes long and it's hilarious. It's just one of the funniest things that I've seen in a really long time. And I feel like we're at a place right now in our country where we just need to laugh a little bit and relax. So we talked to DB about that, just a highlight of his career, some of his great moments, some things that he has learned along the way, how he started out in theater and worked his way up, was discovered by Francis Ford Coppola, and just some advice that he has for anybody pursuing the arts. DB Sweeney, welcome into the Open Mic Podcast. It's good to have you here today. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Well, I'm excited to have you. I've been a lifelong fan. You've you've made some really great movies, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But the important thing right now is how are you doing right now with all of this going on, everybody on lockdown? How are you passing the time? How How is all that working out for you? <laughs> Well, I always look at the bright side of things, and I have two teenagers and uh, 16, 18 years old, and I've gotten to uh, spend a lot more time with them than I might have uh, had we not been in this situation. So that's been good, and they, they've been handling it great. I mean, it's tough on everybody, but, you know, being a teenager is a very social uh, profession, and, uh, they, you know, they both dealt with it very well. Very cool. Well, let's talk about the film, Too Dumb Mix. I mean, first of all, the title itself is just absolutely hilarious. Uh, and I, I probably have watched it literally a dozen times. So how did you come up with this idea? How did you convince Sean to do this with you? <laughs> I mean, it's just one of the funniest things I think I've seen in a really, really long time. Oh, thank you so much. You know, that's, that's the whole idea is just to, uh, to try and kind of, you know, unify people through laughter. I mean, uh, our, our country is so uh, divided and, and even our entertainment sources are so atomized now. I mean, nobody's watching the same thing at the same time. Um, it wasn't very long ago where, you know, there was, you knew which night your show was on, if you, whether it was Friends or, or MASH or whatever show people enjoyed watching. It was like that was an appointment that you made 
and we all would enjoy it together. And then, of course, the uh, the proverbial uh, water water cooler talk the next day. Did you see the episode? We've kind of lost all that um, for many, many reasons. View, viewing habits have changed. Tastes have changed. But I remember, for me, the comedies were always the thing that I loved the most. And as recently as uh, Frasier was a great comedy on TV, and, uh, you know, I tried to watch that every time. And, then, you know, there's been many others, uh, Seinfeld, obviously. And and I think that something about everybody having a laugh together is, is very useful and, and healthy. So I tried to think, what are we allowed to make fun of? And I thought, well, two dumb idiots who keep getting themselves in trouble seems like a, a good place to start. And Sean Austin is one of my favorite people that I've ever worked with. Uh, we did Memphis Bell way back in 1990. And, oh, yeah. uh, he, you know, he's he's been in the business four decades. I mean, he's a lifer. And I've been going to quite a while now, too. And I just thought at some point we would, would have had our paths crossed professionally again, but it never did happen. So I just thought, well, here it is. I'm going to reach out and see if he wants to chase down this idea I have of creating a short form comedy series. And he jumped right on board and uh, it was a blessing for me. Yeah, absolutely hilarious. Two guys that constantly get in trouble. That in itself is hilarious. Winding back up in jail. Um, I, I think one of the funniest things, there's several pieces of this that I find hilarious. Chasing down the ducks at the end, of course, that was just so funny watching you guys to go after this. I mean, what was it like in that moment filming that when you, we said, okay, this is what I have in mind. Like, how did you even come up with a way to put that all together? I mean, how did that whole process begin? When I wrote the script, I thought, all right, here, we'll just figure out how to do it with the geese when we get there. You know, at a certain point, you're going to have to film it and you'll just figure it out. And I figured I'd bring in uh, animal wranglers and stunt guys and we'd figure out how to do it. And it turns out geese are not trainable. So <laughs> I had a, a animal trainer, one of the top Hollywood people admit that to me. You can't really get birds to do anything you want, except certain birds like pigeons, you can get them to fly in and eat seed. And that's about all you can train them to do reliably on a short schedule. So I thought, well, you know what? In that case, we're not going to try to train any geese. We're just going to go out in the wild <laughs> and look, look for a uh, target of opportunity geese and try to get them to uh, come towards us and then chase them. And that's what we did. So um, we had no permits. We had no uh, right to be in the park where we were in filming, which made the whole thing feel more furtive and exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's very real in that moment when you guys are sneaking around. That was one of the first things that came across my mind is like, how do you even get approval to chase down geese of all things? Uh, but uh, clearly you, you definitely made it work. And uh, hats off to you, my friend. Just... Classic. Now, I know you've released this recently. Do you have any plans to maybe do more of these and, and make it into a series? How does it take to get a project like that going and even possibly continue it? Well, we're, we're figuring it out as we go. You know, Sean's on board. I've kind of been, you know, the driving force behind uh, writing these and producing the whole project. So right now we just we're past uh, 60,000 views on Facebook.com slash two dumb mix. No B in there because they're dumb. But uh, if, you know, we get we, we keep this momentum up and we get past 100,000 views or 200,000 views, I imagine we're going to make another one of these real quick. We just want to make sure that people want to see it. So anybody that sees it and likes it, if you can just tell five or ten people to check it out and it and we get a mass, the kind of an audience which bears making uh, another group of these, we're going to do it in a minute. We just want to make sure that we're not, you know, just wasting our time. You know, people have to really respond to it for it to you know, be worth, you know, Sean works all the time. I, I'm pretty busy and 
we love these characters, but we want to make sure that people out there want them. And if they do, we're going to make more. Yeah, I could see, personally, you've got to vote for me, man. I would love to see more of them, because now I want to know what happens next. <laughs> I'm just sitting here going... Well, I've got 10, I've got 10 scripts ready. I've got 10, or 10 scripts ready and 10 more outlines. So we are ready to go. It's just a matter of if the audience speaks and there's, there's a demand for it, we're going to go out and, uh, and make a block of nine or ten more and release them, you know, one, one a week. That's the plan if, if, you know, the audience says do it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you did a great film, Memphis Bell, which is one of my favorites. And I grew up watching a lot of your films. Uh, like, just the list goes on and on. But you got started in this business doing theater first, right? Broadway and doing a series of other plays. And then Francis Ford Coppola, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of discovered you and put you in a film. Is that kind of the timeline of how all of this got started? Yeah, for you? That's, that's yeah, that's very true. Uh, I started out doing plays and trying to figure out how to be an actor, and then I got a TV commercial, which uh, put me in front of a lot of people, but it didn't result in me getting in the movies. It just got me an agent, and then uh, I did some TV shows, guest spots, and then Francis Coppola came in and transformed my life by putting me in Gardens of Stone. Now, when he reached out to you. I imagine that was at a pretty young age. What was going through your mind when somebody like that, so iconic, said, hey, I like you, I like what you're doing? Like, how do you handle that? Like, because that's huge, in my opinion. Yeah, it was big. And, and uh, actually, Fred Roos, uh, it's, he's a, one of the great legendary cast directors, cast The Godfather, and many other movies, R-O-O-S. He discovered me on a movie called, I can't remember the name of the movie, I think it was Seven Minutes in Heaven or something like that. It was a movie about two teenage girls that have a crush on a baseball player. And I met Fred Roos on that. It was a much smaller level movie than a Francis Coppola movie. And Fred Roos said, I'm perfect for this movie. And he couldn't persuade the woman who directed the movie to pick me. She picked some other guy. I don't even know who it was. I never saw the movie, but Fred Roos was so annoyed that this woman on this small movie didn't listen to his advice. I think he was determined to prove her wrong. So that's why he brought me in front of Francis. And then Francis gave me uh, an audition and I, did well enough to be called back. And then I was called back for a third audition where they flew me to Washington. And I thought, wow, I'm really in the running here. But at that point I'd already had auditioned for a few movies and I always seemed to lose out to some guy that everybody knew like Matt Dillon or somebody that, you know, somebody more, somebody who's known, I wasn't known at all. So in this third audition with Mr. Coppola, I, I decided I should lobby for a smaller part than the lead because <laughs> I'm clearly not going to get the lead. So, but I want to be in the movie somehow. And, and I sincerely was lobbying for a smaller part. And I think he was very charmed by that, that, you know, that I was, I wanted to be in the movie so much. So I think that might've contributed to me getting it. It wasn't like a, a gag or anything. I was, I really just wanted to be in the movie and I thought I had no chance at the lead. Very interesting. Well, well, you obviously are super well known now. So that film obviously worked out for you, but at that moment, you're doing all that. Is that pretty common in, in acting today where someone like yourself might take that approach in order to just really lobby to get into the film or, or maybe not? I know you, I don't know how, I know you're super connected now and you're doing a lot of things, but you've probably seen a lot of things change over time, correct? As far as how Hollywood works and kind of how movies are made now versus when you first got your start. Yeah, the casting process has changed entirely. I mean, there's very little um, uh, in-person meetings with casting directors. Everything's done on tape or people record their auditions on their iPhones. And I think, unfortunately, that, that's taken a big um, chunk out of uh, finding new talent because 
if you're not good at recording on an iPhone or making a videotape, you might not be considered, even though you're the best person for the role or the most talented person that they could possibly discover. Because that moment when you walk into a room and you meet people, there's something about your essence and your first impression that I think is hugely valuable. And that's the thing that's going to come through your work later, I think, is that presence. So I think it's unfortunate they don't cast in person as much anymore. I, the movie I directed before Two Dumb Mix was Two Tickets to Paradise, and it actually just occurs to me that I have twos in a lot of my credits. I don't know why that is, but... <laughs> I know, I was looking at that uh, myself. That. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and, and so anyway, when I was casting some of, most of the larger roles in that movie, from John C. McGinley to Ed Harris, I just called them up and I said, hey, would you do this? And they just said yes, so it wasn't really a casting process. But for some of the smaller roles, I would... It was very interesting to me learning how, you know, being on the other side of the table um, in an audition process and watching how people come in. And I realized that how much of it is very simple, that you got to come in and you got to believe you're the part. And if you believe you're the part, there's a chance I'm going to believe you're the part. And it was amazing to me how many people disqualified themselves almost on their first step through the door with their body language or with the first thing they said. You know, people would say things like, uh, hey, I just got the script yesterday, so I hope this is good enough. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, thanks for, uh, maybe you would have been great and I would have thought you had it for a month. Uh, you know, so, or somebody would walk in like they just, you know, their dog just died and they're just, their body language would be like negative. And you could just sort of eliminate people almost like three or four seconds into the audition. And that's where I was talking about this whole idea of walking and taking the room, which now is sadly being lost. And, and I think a lot of our movies and TV shows are suffering because, you know, they kind of hire people for their look or for, you know, whatever, some videotape that they were able to make, which doesn't really translate into like talent or charisma. Interesting. Why do you think Hollywood has moved in that direction as far as self-taping? Do you think just because there are so many films that they're constantly cranking out that they just don't have the time to take people in one at a time? Or I'd, I'd be curious if you're interested just to kind of expound on that a little bit, because I find that very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that a big part of it is that, um, you know, the executives, the, the people, the, you know, when you watch a TV show or a movie, you see all these people that get, get producer credit or executive producer credit. And there's a lot of them and they all get paid too much money. Most of them. I mean, usually, you know, you got a show like two and a half men. I mean, Chuck Lorre, he's the force behind that show. And then there's a couple other guys in my case, when I got on the show, it was Jim Patterson um, was another guy who was very high up in the, uh, um, uh, in the food chain, a couple other producers who were very instrumental, a couple of writers. And then there were like another nine people that I don't think they really had as much to do with it as those guys. But anyway, by the time you get down the pecking order to the casting people, a lot of times I think these executive producers pay the casting people less than they should so they can pay themselves more. Mm. So casting is a tough business. And a lot of the people that I know that are really good at it, they, they, they're always getting, you know, it might be a $10 million movie and they expect the casting director to work for a very low rate for four weeks and come up with all these answers to their casting problems. So for them to make ends meet, I think they have to take on more jobs than they should. And to make that more efficient, they have to do more work off tape. So I'm advocating for higher salaries for casting directors so that they can focus on meeting more actors. I think they would probably have one of the most difficult jobs uh, to sit there and sift through all of these people and to decide this person is right or not and all the conversations that have to take place. Would you say that to be true as far as like deciding what the look is going to be? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, it used to, when I started out, there were cast people like Fred Roos, Sharon Bialy. Uh, you know, there's, there was a lot of great casting people. And they're great casting people today. You know, I mean, there's people that, you know, I could name off five people today who are great. But the point is back then, 
Those people were trusted to meet actors, get a sense of them, and then deliver them in person to the directors and the producers. And then everybody would follow their instincts and say, okay, is this guy the guy or, or not? And now it's, there's more, okay, well, uh, she was on this show uh, that was successful and she has a million Instagram followers. And not really decide whether she's right for this part or he's right for this part. It's based on demographics or, or social media or some other you know, variables which really don't contribute to maybe it being a good cohesive cast or a good version of storytelling in that case. Very interesting. So you started out in theater and you moved to films and you've just had so many great ones, eight men out. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on your, your IMDB credits, uh, you know, are just spectacular. Now, my question is, do you have any of those films that you've done that you find to be standout moments for you that, that were some favorites uh, that you just have fond memories of? Yeah, I've got so many great memories. Uh, you know, as far as the theater versus film thing, I mean, I never said I'm not doing plays anymore, Just, but most of the talented writers, if they want to get paid now, they work in, you know, TV and movies and you know, increasingly short form, whatever kind of thing will pay them. I mean, there used to be a real theater where as a writer, you know, the, the Broadway that, that made Neil Simon a very wealthy guy doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You can come up with a musical or something to break the bank, but there's really not an ongoing you know, Broadway well to draw from or a theater well to draw from Mm -hmm. for many people. So, you know, I would love theater to me is the best. It's the most fun for an actor. You know, you get out there, if you have a good script and a good audience, there's nothing better. But uh, on the film side, you know, I've, I've had some great scripts. Tony Gilroy wrote the, uh, the cutting edge and Moira Kelly was an unbelievable co-star. And so Lonesome Dove, I got to be opposite, um, uh, Robert Duvall and a Larry McMurtry story. So I've been very blessed in, in many ways. Yeah, well, to be honest, one of my you, you've had some great ones, but one of my favorite ones. I'm a baseball movie fan, and uh, Eight Men Out is definitely up there for me. Your role as uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson was just so iconic, and uh, I, I just recently showed that film to my son. He's he's in love with baseball, and uh, just so you know, man, your your iconicness and all of that is. Is still translating over to a completely different generation, and uh, I'm trying to uh, stoke the fires in him to play baseball one day. Uh, so thank you for all of that. I really do appreciate that. Um, oh, that's great. That's great. Thanks for saying that. And you know, I'm very proud of that movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cutting edge, of course. Do you ever have people shout lines out to you whenever you're able to go in public? Uh, toe pick, you know. Well, if I'm, if I'm in a yeah, if I'm in a hurry at an airport and I take a bad step, uh, I'm gonna hear 15 people yell out toe pick. That's for <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, that movie has been, uh, you know, that's probably an iconic uh, moment or whatever uh, the line of dialogue that I've been associated with. I guess "Say it ain't so, Joe" is uh, iconic outside of Eight Men Out because I think in Eight Men Out that's one of the worst mo- moments in the movie when that the kid they have and the way they shot that and everything. I think it's kind of corny, but. Um, but that line is very iconic in the world of baseball. So mm-hmm. some people, uh, if some of that rubs off on our movie, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got film and theater. One last piece that I want to touch on for those listening who might be interested in pursuing a career in, in acting or in theater. Do you have some advice maybe that you could share with our audience that maybe somebody shared with you or that you wish maybe somebody would have shared with you when you first started out in this a lifelong business for you. Well, I mean, to me, you know, the theater option, I don't know if it's there as much as it was when I was starting out in the eighties, but, um, 
if you, yeah, I think you could always do a play with your friends. And even if you don't have an audience, when I started out doing plays with my friends, we would have 60 seats in this little theater that we put together at New York university. And, uh, usually we'd have, you know, three or four or five people in those 60 seats, but it didn't matter to us. We were out there having a great time and doing the play. And so I think theater is always a great option, but for the people that want to jump into making short films or making movies, that's great too. That's another way to do it. I would just say that the, the advice I wish I had gotten in the beginning, which I didn't really need it because I had a good work ethic, but for a lot of my co-stars and some other people that I worked with, they could have benefited from this, which is the, the two things you have to do is you got to be on time and you have to know your lines. And it's re- especially important at the entry level. Like if you get, if you're lucky enough, somebody that is listening to you is, has a chance to be, let's say they're on a TV show for one day and they have two lines. It seems like, oh, okay, it's not a very big deal. You only have two lines. Nobody's going to be very upset if you don't get it exactly right. But they really are going to be upset because they're worried about bigger things. They're counting on you to do those two lines properly, to be on time, to be alert, to be engaged. So then they can move on to their bigger problems, which might be the star of the show has a drug problem (laughs) and they need to get them out of their dressing room or whatever their other issues are. But so that if you, if you get a chance and you get a foot in the door, just be early. If you're not 15 minutes early, you're late, know your lines, know the other guy's lines or the other girl's lines and just be available. If they say something like, what did you do this? Or just be, you know, agile and try to try to make it work. That's funny that you said that thing about the lines, because I've had several other guests say the same thing. So I think that's a pretty good common thread. Uh, Even if it's just one line, remember it and do your best so they don't have to worry about you versus the the main star of the show. It's it's also kind of funny. I remember I was a background actor in a series shot in New Mexico traffic that you also were in, correct? And uh I don't I think you I was in Crash. Crash, sorry, not traffic, Crash. Yeah, yeah with uh Dennis Hopper. And uh I remember yeah. we were filming a scene and you were uh, it was one of the days that you were on set traffic. I don't know why that came to my mind, but uh Crash, which was such a great show, man. Um, but I remember there were some actors that were having a difficult time remembering lines. <laughs> so uh, some very sage it's advice. It's not easy. You just have to do it. Yeah. You have to do it. You know, it's, yeah. there's a lot of ways to do it. You write them down. You say them out loud. You record the other person's line on a tape recorder and leave spaces for your line. There's a million ways to do it. It's just work. You just got to do it, and you got to get it done, and there's no excuses. Because when you don't know your lines exactly right, Actors, as you're searching for your line, a lot of times actors will say things like, um, and you know, and, and that's maybe the way people normally talk in our society, but it's not interesting enough to watch in a movie or a TV show. The guy who wrote it, if he's any good, he gave you something that's a little sharper, a little more memorable, a little more pungent that you're just diluting by adding that garbage in because you don't know your lines. Very, very sage advice from the great uh, D.B. Sweeney. So the film is Too Dumb Mix, no B. And people can watch that where let's just swing by that one more time. So people know this will air here just very soon. Cause this is all fresh and hot. Where can they watch this? Uh, you guys tagline it is five great minutes with six minutes of great laughs or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that was a funny thing that one of the guys helped me with the marketing put together. And I thought that was great. Um, it's on facebook.com slash two dumb mix. No B. Or if you prefer to watch it on YouTube, you can just go put in Two Dumb Mix on YouTube and it's there. But if you do watch it on Facebook.com and you leave a comment or you show your friends, that all helps us. 
we're trying to build a great big audience for this so that we can come up with a bunch more episodes. Very well. Well, DB Sweeney, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for choosing to join in to this week's episode. Be sure to follow the show on social media, Brett's Open Mic, on all platforms, and to subscribe to the show on your player of choice, which is absolutely free. Finally, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Every little bit helps. Until next time, cheers! Cheers!